everyone. Thanks for uh, coming tonight and uh, thanks for tuning in via the live stream. This is the Gospel of John and this is week three of our uh, discussion. And my wife says, ask Larry to send me the link to the stream. <laughs> Why? <laughs> send her the, send Pansy the link to the stream. She's home. So. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So we send that out with the email each week, don't we? Yeah, you should have an email <clears throat> somewhere. Everybody should have this in the class uh, that has a link to the stream. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> she just knows that we should be on at this particular time. All right, let's uh, have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for your goodness to us this day and this week. And <clears throat> thank you for the blessings we enjoy because we are in Christ and because of the work of Christ. And we are privileged and we're blessed to be able to study the life of Christ uh, and his ministry on earth. We're thankful for his perfect life that uh, uh, enables us to have, uh, enabled him to, to make a perfect sacrifice and for us, therefore, to be in Christ in the sense that his righteousness is, is, uh, is applied to us and we stand justified declared righteous in your sight. And we're thankful, Father, for <clears throat> the fact that uh, you sent the Holy Spirit to dwell and to guide and lead us in the paths that we should go. And we pray that you'll help us as we study your word to gain insight into who you are and your son and, and what you would have for us and how we should act and respond in accordance with your will. Thank you, Father, now for our time together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are looking at the Gospel of John, and uh, we are still in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. Uh, the uh, the uh, blind man is healed in chapter 9, and then chapter 10, the, the Discourse on the Shepherd. We've seen that, those two things, and we have a third thing here, this discussion, continued discussion at the Feast of the Dedication. Um, so we are, as I mentioned last week, coming to the very end of Jesus' ministry. We are, you know, if we have the dates correct, we're not exactly certain of the year Christ died. Many take an A.D. 30. I, I kind of think that's probably right, but we don't know specifically. But if you take the A.D. 30 date, <clears throat> that means we are uh, almost to A.D. 30. We're December of A.D. 29. Uh, and so we just have a few months, uh, about four months, until his death, crucifixion, and so forth. So we're uh, December of A.D. 29, and we're at the Feast of Dedication. And we mentioned last week that this Feast of Dedication is today, Jews call it Hanukkah. That's how it's commonly called in our culture. And this is not, a, this is not something that was commanded in the Old Testament. This is just a tradition that has uh, started back in uh, you know, 164 uh, B.C., um, and continued on right up by Jews to this present day. And so it celebrates the uh, recapture of, uh, of, of Jerusalem and the temple from the Seleucids or the Syrians. These were the Greeks, the Greek ancestors of Alexander the Great who controlled Israel during this, the second century B.C. and the Jews recaptured, remember I said, Jerusalem, and they, uh, in 164, they rededicated the temple, sacri you know, and, and so forth, and they celebrated with this feast of Hanukkah each December. They remember this, they call it the Festival of Lights, and so forth. Um, 
So this is wintertime in uh, Israel, and, and Jesus is teaching in the uh, Solomon's Colonnade, or this portico that is on the east side of the Temple Mount. This would be Herod's rebuilding of the temple that we're looking at right here, but this is where the temple has always stood. Uh, and, of course, today, you know, you can go there to the Temple Mount. It's still the same size as it is today if you go there to Jerusalem. But on the right side over there where you see that building uh, over here, which is the Stoa, this is where the probably the, the uh, um, Sanhedrin met. Uh, that today, and that, if you go to that area today, that would be where the... Uh, Alaska Mosque is. There's a mosque there. And then in, where the temple's at is the Dome of the Rock. Uh, this is just a memorial to the place where, you know, Muhammad supposedly ascended into heaven and so forth. And uh, it's not a mosque. Sometimes it's called the Mosque of Omar, but it's not an actual religious mosque. <clears throat> That's on the site of the temple pretty surely today. So that's the setting here uh, that we're talking about. Um, it says in verse 22, they, they then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem was winter and Jesus with the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. And that brings up the question of Messiahship, verses 24 through 31. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I say the Jews wanted Jesus to openly and plainly tell them if he was the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus had done so privately to the Samaritan women, but because the term had too many political and military connotations in his day, he would not use the term among his own people except to his disciples. And we talked about this last week where, remember, at Caesarea Philippi earlier in his Galilean ministry, uh, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And Simon said, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, uh, and I said, uh, you know, uh, the problem here, of course, you know, is that for even Jews today, the problem then was, they were expecting a Messiah who would come, set up his kingdom as the Old Testament prophesies, that the Messiah will come, set up his kingdom and reign and so forth. They're expecting that if you're the Messiah. I mean, it looked like he was in many ways because he did these miracles and so forth. And remember, there was these debates back and forth. You know, he must be the Messiah. He's doing these miracles. Who could, who could be doing those and so forth? But the problem is he's not made any, you know, political moves. He's not <laughs> tried to throw out the Romans as they expected, set up a kingdom, you know, nothing like that. And the problem, of course, even for his own disciples, is that he has talked about, you know, being killed and, you know, dying and, and suffering under the, you know, and that's, that's hard for the disciples to understand. Remember, we read this last week. Matthew 16, where Jesus began to explain to his disciples uh, uh, he, I, he, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. See, Peter, <laughs> Peter's expecting the Messiah to set up, you know, this is just, this is not possible. This can't be. Luke 18, we read, Jesus told the twelve, took the twelve aside and said, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. And I mentioned this problem last week about 
<clears throat> it is, you know, it's a problem of trying to determine um, how this relates to, you know, the disciples' salvation. And, you know, and I was going to relate that to the Old Testament saints' salvation. Because we say today a person has got to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, right? Nobody can be saved except by believing that truth. That's essential. But what about these disciples? You know, here's Peter saying, no, I'm not taking that. I'm not, that's not going to happen to you. How do we explain that? When most of us say, yeah, Peter was saved and so forth. And that, that's a kind of a similar situation I was saying to the Old Testament saints. And I was mentioned in dispensationalism, which is a, a kind of way to interpret Scripture that we hold to here uh, among our leadership. Uh, it emphasizes this idea of progressive revelation, that, that the truths about, about salvation have been progressively revealed. And not everybody in the Old Testament, understood, they didn't understand what we understand. And this is a little bit of a difference between... Uh, different ways to interpret the scripture. Another way it's very common is called covenant theology. Now, in the lifetime that I have been living and you know, in evangelicalism and fundamentalism, dispensationalism dominated. It was the common view because the Schofield Reference Bible, uh, you know, teachers on MacArthur and you know, whoever was teaching Swindoll and you know, the schools that I went to and so forth. But, you know, a lot of Reformed denominations, Presbyterians, Christian Reformed, other Reformed denominations, uh, hold to covenant theology. And so in covenant theology, um, the church began with Adam and Eve. The church began in the Garden of Eden. So the church has been, is, has been as long as the first person, when the first person was saved, the church was started then. So, the, so they, what the difference between this covenant theology and dispensationalism is that this covenant theology sees a continuity, a lot of emphasis on continuity. The church has always been since the Garden of Eden. First person saved the church, and the church has been going on. Dispensationalism says, no, there's more discontinuity. There's Israel, and there's the church. Now, the covenant theologians would say, well, Israel was the Old Testament church, and we're just a continuation of that. And they continue a lot of things. That's why they baptize infants. Well, infant baptism is really just a continuation of circumcision. Infants were circumcised, so babies are baptized. You see how you get that. And so uh, they don't see the church as starting on the day of Pentecost. <laughs> yeah, they see something happening, but they wouldn't say the church. So... Israel, Israel, that was the Old Testament church, and we're, the church is just a, it's one continuation. So there's more continuity. And so when you hear them speak about people being saved in the Old Testament, they tend to, uh, preachers and others, they'll tend to equate or say that Old Testament saints had a lot more knowledge than I think they did. They tend to think that Old Testament saints knew more about the Messiah and had more information. You know, and there are people in the Old Testament who seem to know a lot. You know, I mean, David certainly knew more than, knew a lot about the Messiah and his coming. But a case like Abraham, you know, where he's sacrificing his son Isaac. Well, Isaac, you know, says, who's going to, where's the sacrifice? Well, God will provide. So, so Abraham knew all about Jesus, you know. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's what he was really Knew, knew about Jesus and his birth and his virgin birth, you know. So we tend to emphasize more discontinuity, that is. And so how do we explain Old Testament salvation? Well, we explain, and, and that we can explain what the disciples, the problem the disciples here. Remember, I've mentioned this before, but if you look at the doctrine of salvation, we've got, you know, three things we want to look at. We want to look at the basis of salvation, what's it based upon, uh, how is it possible it's based upon, it's based on the death of Christ, and everybody agrees with that. Covenant theologians and, and so forth, and we all agree that if anybody is saved in any dispensation at any time, from Adam, if Adam was saved, I think he probably was, 
Fatim was saved right up to the last person saved. They're saved because Christ died on the cross for their sins. And so even a guy like Abraham was saved, even though Christ hadn't died, he would die for Abraham's sins. As Paul says in Romans 3, he talks about the fact that he died for sins that, you know, God, for, God, God sort of saved Abraham on credit. That is, Christ hadn't died, but this was imputed. Christ was imputed to them as though he would die. So there's the basis of salvation. Everybody agrees on that, the basis of salvation. Everybody agrees about the means or the instrument of salvation, faith. Anybody who's ever saved, Old Testament saint Abraham, Jacob, anybody, if they were saved, they were saved by faith. We're saved by faith, faith alone. So we agree on those two things. The difference here is the content of salvation. What do you have to believe? And dispensationalists emphasize a progressive uh, revealing of the content. That is, Adam and Eve have Genesis 3.15. You know, the Proto-Evangelium as it's called, you know. Someone is going to do something to Satan. You remember that passage that says, you know, <laughs> and he will, he'll crush the head of Satan and Satan will bruise his heel, remember? So there's a promise of the Messiah right there in Genesis 3.15. So I would say that's enough content. If Adam was saved, probably was, he was saved based on the death of Christ. He was saved because he believed faith in what God revealed and that's what God revealed to him. He didn't know about the virgin birth of Christ. He didn't know that the name of the Messiah was Jesus, that this one that's going to crush the head of Satan. He didn't know that that was Jesus. He didn't know he was born. <laughs> he didn't know any of that stuff. So as time goes on in the Old Testament, people know more and more. You know, David knows more than Adam knows and so forth. More is revealed. And so the disciples, they knew Jesus as the Messiah. They trusted him as the Messiah. That was their content. Remember, he called them here in John, the early chapters of John, John 1, John 2. So he calls them in John 1, and so they believed him. They trusted him. That was the content. They didn't know. They didn't understand all about his death and resurrection at that time. See the point? Just like Abraham didn't know about the death and resurrection. So the content that people have known are needed to know has been progressive, that more has been revealed over time and more is revealed to the disciples here as time goes along. Now, they'll eventually get it. <laughs> you know, they'll understand it. They don't really probably understand it fully until, you know, after his death, you know, after his resurrection, then they, they understand all the, what's going on here and all these kinds of things. So, I think that it's easier to understand Old Testament salvation that way rather than trying to say that they had a lot more knowledge, that somehow they knew about Christ or, you know, they understood. I don't think they understood that fully. They knew however much God had revealed to them. And that's what, that was their content of their faith. And if they believed that and trusted God, then they would be saved on that basis. And so I think we can explain this kind of ignorance, in fact, this fact, this ignorance of the disciples because God hadn't perfectly revealed all this to them. Jesus was revealing it, but they had a hard time accepting it here. You can see uh, it, it's really not until after his death and resurrection that they really understand uh, all the implications of what's happening and how his first coming fits, you know, with his ultimate coming, you know, that he'll tell them, after he's resurrected, you know, uh, they say, are you going to rest uh, restore the kingdom right now? You remember that in the book of Acts chapter 1? Are you going to restore the kingdom? Because they're still waiting for that kingdom. <laughs> okay, he died. He was raised. Okay, now we're ready for the kingdom. And, he's, and they say, are you going to restore that? Well, yes, I am, but not, it's not right now, you know. There's a, I've got a whole program here that you don't, that's going to unfold about the church age a different dispensation that's different from what went on before and that'll be revealed and so forth. So, 
verse 25. Jesus answered, because they say, you know, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Uh, when Jesus says, I did tell you, he was not referring to an explicit statement of which there does not appear to be one unless 858 comes into play here. You know, he says, before Abraham came into being, I am. Uh, so when he says, I did tell you, he, he's probably referring to his teaching about his relationship to the Father in conjunction with his miracles, such as the healing of the blind man from birth. So he's been talking here, you know, all along about his relationship to the Father. He's come from the Father, their relationship and so forth. He reveals the Father. Uh, so he, is, he has told them, but he says, you did not believe. Uh, and that's true. They, they didn't accept that. They wanted to stone him. Uh, so, you know, when, they, uh, when he says, you do not believe uh, because you're not my sheep, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them. So the ultimate reason for their unbelief is the reason for anybody's unbelief. They're not, you know, Jesus' sheep. And this, remember, is not an intellectual problem. It's really a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. They're not Jesus' sheep, you know. So the reason unbelievers don't believe, the reason we didn't believe at one time, is not because of some intellectual deficiency, you know. It was because of sin, wasn't it? It was because of depravity. It was a moral problem. It was because we had ultimately, uh, we were separated from God. We, we, we hated the things of God. Uh, <laughs> we didn't understand the natural, the, the unsaved person, the person without the Spirit, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So there's a natural animosity that we had as unbelievers or unbelievers have, that these people have, to spiritual things. And so they're not going to believe unless God does a work, unless they're one of his sheep, as, he, as we know. He says, uh, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. So as we have been told earlier that Jesus gives life to his sheep, now we are told it's eternal life. As a result, they will never perish. Even so, the power is not so much in the life itself, but in the fact that no one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand. But like everything else Jesus does, even his preserving action is not independent of the Father. It's the Father himself who will ultimately, who ultimately stands behind the work of preservation. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And the Father is greater than all, including Jesus, in a sense. Uh, so he says, uh, uh, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So when Jesus talks about the Father being greater than all or greater than Him, we're talking about in what's called a functional sense and not an ontological sense. <clears throat> so what does that mean? Well, ontology, ontology has to do with being or essence. So the Father is not greater than Jesus as far as His essence or His being is concerned. They're equal. They're both God. But they function in a way that the Father is first and the Son is second. The Father sends the Son. The Son doesn't send the Father. There is this relationship they have that has nothing to do with essence or being. 
And we can make comparisons to that, you know, to things in our life. Uh, you may work at a job and you have a boss, you know. Your boss is functionally superior to you. <laughs> he may or she may not be, you know, is not in a sense ontologically. We're all in the image of God. We're all equal in God's sight. So your boss is not necessarily better than you. I mean, I've had, you may have a boss who's <laughs> inferior to you, you know, <laughs> in all kinds of ways, mentally and every other way, you know. But they have a position. They function as your boss. So they're functionally over you. And this is the same thing we, it's, it, you know, in our theology, we have the same thing in the, in the family relationship, husband and wife. The, fun, the, father, the father is the functional head. He's not ontologically superior, you know, but he is functionally the head of the family in that sense. And uh, so that's what we have here. We have, when we talk about the father and the son, we're always talking about function and not ontology. Um, now, in the, in the world we live in today, that's just not acceptable, especially in human relationships, <laughs> you know, between men and women. What I just said would get me stoned in a lot of places, you know, about the husband and wife and so forth. That's just not acceptable because to say one person is the head of another, they would just say, well, that means they're inferior. Well, that's just not true. Someone can be functionally over someone else and it doesn't mean they're inferior to the other person. It has nothing to do with ontology, with essence or being. So Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And it's kind of interesting here because in the Greek language, I know you've heard this many times, but in the Greek language and some other languages, a lot of other languages too, a lot of modern languages, uh, words have gender. Uh, based upon the way they're spelled. So that's true in like French and German. You have, pro, you have the, the word the, depending on whether it's masculine or feminine, if it's, if it's used of a man or a woman and so forth. Uh, it has to do with just grammatical gender. And so in Greek, you have masculine, feminine, neuter words. And the word one could be masculine, feminine, but here it's neuter. It says, I and the Father are one. Now he says he... He uses that neuter because he is saying they are one in purpose. They're one in nature. If he used the masculine, it might indicate they are one person. They're the same person, but they're not the same person. Remember, they're different persons. And so the, if he used the masculine one, that could be a little confusing here, but he doesn't. He uses the neuter one not because they're not... May, they're not, you know, they don't have, they're not father and son, but because he wants to emphasize they are of the same purpose, they are of the same nature. They're related in that way. Um, and, and the Jews understand this very well, notice here, because they want to stone him again. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. When he says, I and the Father are one, they get that. <laughs> That's, that's saying a lot. That's saying we're equal. We're the same in essence, uh, in our essence or being. They understand that. And so they, that, that's, that's heresy to them for him to say he's equal to God, the God they know of the Old Testament. And they're going to stone him for that. Verse 32 through 38, then we see the charge of blasphemy. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, from which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. The enemies of Jesus are blind to the truth of his miracles and his teaching. They only see blasphemy, as they say, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Of course, for us, the readers, we know that Jesus has not tried to make himself God, 
He always was God. Remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's not trying to make himself God. He is God. That's what he is. Um, and uh, they say that's blasphemous. You, a mere man, claiming to be God. Now, the same charge of blasphemy will be brought up you know, later at the trial. John 19, we'll see. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I, don't find, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. So he claimed to be equal with God. And if, if you, you know, our law says <laughs> you've, got, you've got to be killed for that. And, of course, Pilate, you know, he doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to him. That's not a problem for him, but he's got to go along with these religious people. You know, he's got to get along with them. So he, he allows it to proceed. Jesus answered them, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If you call them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? So Jesus defends his claim by pointing to their own scriptures. Is it not written in your law? Here law refers to the entire Old Testament. Is it written in the Old Testament? doesn't say there, I have said you are gods. He's quoting here from Psalm 82, 6, when he says, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. Verse 6 says, of Psalm 82, 6, I said... You are gods. You are the sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. The text shows that the word God can legitimately be used to refer to others than God Himself. That is, we're talking about the Hebrew word Elohim here. That word Elohim, which is the term for God, in the Old Testament is sometimes used for beings who are not the one true God. <clears throat> There's some debate as to who's being addressed in Psalm 82.6, but I prefer the view, popular in rabbinic circles, that the reference is to the unjust judges who can be called gods because they stand in the place of God. Compare, for instance, Exodus 4.16. He, that is Aaron, will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he was your mouth, and if you, Moses, were God to him. So this is God speaking to Moses and saying, Aaron's going to speak to the people and it'll be like he is your mouth and you will be like God to him. 7.1 Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Thus Jesus may be arguing from what's called the lesser to the greater. If these Old Testament judges in Psalm 82.6, he's quoting Psalm 82.6, I was just citing other examples in the Old Testament where the word God, Elohim, is applied to men because they're over men. They have authority over people, and so they're a God. They're an authority in that sense. It's used in the sense of that. And so Jesus says uh, here, He's arguing uh, if the Old Testament judges could be called gods because they were vehicles for the Word of God, then how much more is that title appropriate for Jesus, the one whom God set apart as His own and sent to the world? So the point here Jesus is making again is that this, it can't be blasphemy to use this word Elohim, this word God, to refer to a man. Your argument about that has got to be wrong. You can't, you can't, you know, you're, you're arguing that the word God can't be used of a man. You know, now, of course, Jesus really is God. That's much more. But he's saying, even if we just, you know, forget about that for a moment. <laughs> you got the charge of blasphemy because some man is being called God. Well, you got a problem in the Old Testament. 
you got a problem with Scripture right there. You, you know, you can't just automatically say because the term God, <coughs> Elohim, is used in a sense of a human being that that's automatically blasphemy. Now, of course, and, and if that's true, if that's true that it's used of just this man who has this authority, then how much more is it appropriate to use the term God to refer to someone sent from God like me? You know, it's whatever you think about me, I've been sent by God, I'm doing these miracles. How would that be inappropriate, he's arguing here. And so he's saying the Scripture cannot be set aside. The Scripture proves this point. It shows this. And the Scripture cannot be set aside means it cannot be annulled of its authority. It cannot be proved false. It cannot be emptied of its authority. And this is, a you know, apart from the context right here, this is a, a statement by Jesus that, we use quite a bit in other disciplines and other discussions. When we're talking about Scripture and the authority of Scripture, is Scripture inspired? Is it authoritative? Well, Jesus says it cannot be, you know, if I could give the Bill Combs literal translation, it cannot be emptied of its authority. Uh, it cannot be loosed. It, it just cannot be, you can't take away the authority of Scripture. It has continuing authority. And this, is, this just has a lot of implica implications. Um, the point here is that the Jews can't set aside the authority of Scripture just because Jesus has cited a text that argues against their charge of blasphemy. But in a larger context that we often use this, you know, it speaks of the authority, the continuing authority of Scripture. And, it, you know, it says something here about when I'm teaching this class on how we got our Bible, one of the things I have to deal with is, <clears throat> is uh, how do we know that the book we have, that's 66 books, how do we know those are the right books? You know, how do we know those 66? You know, we're talking about canonicity, the canon. How do we know which books are in the canon of Scripture? How do we know that? And... Uh, so we have to deal with that. Well, the Old Testament part of that's very easy. The New Testament part is harder because we got Jesus talking here, but nobody's written a New Testament book yet. <laughs> now later we're going, to get to some, we're going to get to some verses in John 14 and John 16 that are going to help us a lot because Jesus is going to sort of pre-authenticate the New Testament. But it's easy when we talk about the Old Testament. That's easy. I don't have to, I, all I got to do is just rest right here. You know, here's Jesus. He's walking around on earth and he's talking about scripture cannot be emptied of its authority. Now we know he had the same 39 books we have. And Jesus never says in his ministry, you know, I don't know about that 39. Let's face it. 38, I can go with, you know, maybe 37. But those 39, there's just one or two in there. Job is not quite... And Jonah, uh, that whale story, man, that, <laughs> that just won't work. 30, no, we got to, no, he doesn't say any of that. He accepts the books that were in our Old Testament, that same books. He doesn't question them. He doesn't doubt them. You know, he says scripture cannot be emptied of its authority. So we have numerous statements like that, numbers of them, this one and others, where Jesus testifies to the authority of the Old Testament. And this is a, certainly a very good one here, a very helpful one for us that gives us confidence. He has, he, has the, he, he has the same Old Testament and he has complete confidence. He doesn't say, hey, listen, what, that verse is not quite right or what, you know, copy this. You know, he never says anything. He accepts the 39 books that we have exactly. So that's, that's a very helpful thing here. All right, verse 37. Do not believe me. The last thing here is, you remember, uh, why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm the son of God's son. Do, you not believe, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus did not expect his opponents to believe him based solely on his own claims, 
But if he does what the Father does, then his claims deserve serious consideration. They should really not be ignorant of the works of the Father. But if they cannot believe Jesus, they should not believe the miracles, literally the works here. Jesus makes this same argument again back in verse 25. I'm doing all these miracles. I'm doing all the works of the Father. You should believe the works, even if you don't believe me. But they reject all that because they say, you know, this guy's doing this because demon he's demon-possessed. That's how he's, they don't even believe the works. They don't even accept that. What's the results? Verses 39 through 42. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, through John, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So Jesus' enemies still thought him to be a blasphemer, sought to seize him, but again he escaped. It says, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Doubtless because his hour had not yet come. Now we see a lot of those places where he escaped. We don't know whether, is that just God providentially working or is that, I don't know how he was able to escape in all these cases. But as we say, his hour had not yet come. God's, God's going God's to, you know, his, the plan is he will be taken and crucified, but not yet. The opposition has become so great that Jesus withdraws withdraws to the east side of Jordan where John had been baptizing. This is a place where we sort of talked about before Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. Some of these places I show you on the map we're not positive about, but you know most of them we we have a good idea, and that's where most people think uh, this Bethany on the other side of Jordan. We're going to talk about another Bethany in just a moment that's very near a couple miles from Jerusalem, the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But this is a different Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River and not right a suburb of Jerusalem. Um, so John the Baptist's greatness uh, does not consist in his performance of miracles. In fact, uh, John never did any miracles. <laughs> The Gospels say John didn't do any miracles at all. So his greatness here uh, doesn't consist of the miracles. He never performed, verse 41, a sign. Uh, never performed any miracles. Uh, and yet Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's an amazing statement. You have to try, try to unpack that one. Here's Jesus in Matthew and says, John has never done any miracles, but yet among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John. You know, we'd say, what about Elijah? Man, he seemed pretty great. <laughs> Look what he did, you know. But John didn't do any miracles. Why is he greater? Uh, most people understand it this way, that John was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets in the sense that John had the honor of being the forerunner for the Messiah. John's greatness was in his mission and what he was given to do. There, yeah, there were prophets in the Old Testament. They gave, talked about the Messiah and gave hints about the Messiah and gave little insights. But none of them were like John, who actually baptized the Messiah and, and uh, spoke about the Messiah in those direct terms. So in the sense that he was this forerunner who was to lay down the path and for the Messiah, that, that is something great. Um, he's, the, he's the prophet who pointed him out. said, here he is. This is the Messiah. All right, that brings us to the end of chapter 10 then. And we come then to chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus and the close of the public ministry. So chapters 11 and 12, that's the last of this public ministry. Chapter 13, we pick up the upper room discourse and this sort of private ministry to the disciples before his uh, crucifixion.
The first thing we see is the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. Let's look at the background here in verses 1 through 16. We start with the sickness of Lazarus in verses 1 through 6. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So uh, the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Uh, as I say, the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus appear three times in the Gospels. In Luke 10, 38 through 42 is the incident where Jesus was in their home and Mary was criticized by her sister Martha for sitting at Jesus' feet while she did all the work. Only here we, do, we learn that Lazarus is their brother. Uh, their home was in Bethany, which is a small village near Jerusalem. So there is Jerusalem, uh, the Temple Mount and so forth, with the outline there of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, to the east of the Temple Mount, there's a valley there, the Kidron Valley, a very kind of a deep valley. Um, and then you go to the Mount of Olives. You go up high again, and the Mount of Olives is, is really higher than the Temple Mount there. And then you come back down on the other side of the Mount of Olives to Bethany. You can see on the far east there. This is what it uh, would look like today. You can see Bethany, this, you know, of course, this is the modern city, but you can see the Mount of Olives here, right here. Uh, and uh, this is a graveyard all along here, all around the other side. This is a Jewish graveyard, and if you are rich and, uh, you know, have a lot of money, I just remember just recently a Jewish guy, and I forgot who it was now. I can't remember his, who it was. It was a, some Jewish man who was very wealthy got buried there recently. Costs a lot of money. But they want to be buried there because they believe that when the Messiah comes back to the Mount of Olives, that these people will be the first ones who are raised. So they want to be there first. And so that's a privileged place to be buried right there. So you're really down here lower in Bethany, and you come up to the Mount of Olives, and you go down, down to the Kidron Valley, and then back to the Temple Mount here is, what, uh, is how it looks today. Uh, I say the evangelist um, also identifies... Mary as the one who will shortly anoint Jesus' feet and wipe them with her hair, 12, 1 through 9. At this time, we learn that Lazarus is gravely ill. So when this illness occurred, uh, the disciples sent word, we're, you know, here, uh, we're told in verse 3, they sent word to Jerusalem. So uh, to Jesus, uh, to, uh, they sent word to Jesus, who was, you remember, and at, at this suburb, he was at this uh, Bethany beyond Jordan. Remember, they're in Jerusalem. So they send word uh, to Jesus, who is in that place beyond the Jordan River there, uh, to him. Now, Bethany is about, uh, you know, specifically, people say about one and three-quarter miles. Um, so, you know, people would just walk that, people would just walk that without thinking about it, one and three quarter miles, you know, because people walked everywhere that day. I mean, Jesus walked down to Jericho, and that's 20 miles. Uh, you know, just walk down there and walk back in a day. Can you, <laughs> imagine, can you imagine doing that? People did it commonly, you know. So this is just a, 
this is like walking out to get your mail to walk down to Bethany or something. It's it's no no problem at all for them. So uh, they're very they're really just in the suburb here. Uh, <clears throat> so it's just uh, east. You, you can see from the previous uh, previous one. Oh yeah, it's just uh, pretty much east, maybe a little south on that map. You know, southeast of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it's on the, you know, it's, it's close to the road to Jericho. Here's the road to Jericho here, and it's just a little south of that road to Jericho uh, that I talked about before. And notice Lazarus is called here, the one you love is sick. That's a, it's interesting in the sense that, you know, we don't, we don't know anything about that from the Gospels or anything. We don't know anything about this close relationship except right here, you know, so... You know, obviously Jesus had friends and relationships that are not really explored in the Gospels at all. Fam you know, friends, family, that we just don't know anything about. This is just, this is the one you love is sick. Well, uh, we'll talk about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John calls himself, but here's another man who had a close relationship with Jesus. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. The response of Jesus that this sickness will not end in death did not mean that Lazarus would not die, but that Lazarus' death would not ultimately end in death. We know that's what he meant because obviously he did die. And so Jesus is saying, no, it won't end in death, ultimately in death. On the contrary, it will end in the resurrection from the dead. And this will be for God's glory. Now here when we say, uh, Jesus says, this will be for God's glory, we don't mean, uh, the word glory has various meanings, and sometimes it means praise of God, the glory of God, the praise that is due God. But as it often does in this gospel, it's, in order that God's glory may be revealed. So it's for God's glory to be revealed. That's what he's talking about. Um, and, that, you know, it's, it's like the man born blind we saw earlier in John chapter 9. You remember? His disciples see this man born blind, and they say, uh, you know, who sinned? They ask Jesus, who sinned? Who sinned that this man is born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Which one? Somebody had to sin here, you know, they say. And Jesus says, no, neither one. He was born blind so that, you know, God's glory could be revealed so that I could heal his blindness. And this would result in uh, the fact that God's glory can be revealed and, and, and all in God's plan. Um, and so God's, you know, disclosure of himself, as we know, takes, takes, uh, takes, uh, um, takes place preeminently in, in the Son. So that, he says, so that God's uh, glory may be revealed, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So the raising of Lazarus is going to be an opportunity, just like the healing of the blind man, for the Father to glorify the Son, to point to the Son, to bring glory to the Son, to show who the Son is, even though, as we've seen, these unbelievers all around Him reject all that. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when He heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where He was two more days. But if Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, why did he wait two more days until the death of Lazarus, as we'll see in verses 11 through 13? Why did he wait for the death in order to go to Bethany? So Jesus is delaying his coming to Bethany. He's waiting for the right time, for the divine signal, which is the death of Lazarus. This death of Lazarus is going to accomplish ultimately God's purpose. 
uh, it's going to result in the strengthening of the faith of Lazarus' family, of Mary and Martha. Uh, it's going to strengthen the faith of some of these onlookers who have come there to mourn Lazarus and so forth. So God has a purpose in allowing Lazarus to die just as he has a purpose in uh, allowing the man to be born blind. So again, I remind you of what I've told you many times, and we all know it's just hard to, it's hard to deal with in our own lives sometimes, but God has a purpose <laughs> in what he's doing in our lives sometimes. And, you know, uh, we got the case of Lazarus dying, and we got the case of the man born blind, and and uh, you know when somebody we find out somebody is dying, we wonder why sometimes, especially you know if they're younger and so forth, uh, you know, uh, and they seem to have a very full life, you know, a life dedicated to God, you know, and and they they're taken by some tragic accident or some disease that just, you know, and, and we wonder about ourselves. Why does this happen to me? And, uh, you know, sometimes there's no explanation. Um, God doesn't explain it. Here we get some explanation. You know? <laughs> the man born blind, we know why. And we know why Lazarus had to die, you know. And Jesus tells the disciples, you know, but you know, that's, that's unusual. Most of the time, we just don't know God's providence. We don't know why He's doing. We just know that all things, God is working all things for our good and His glory. We know that, Romans 8, don't we? So we have to reflect on that as much as we can. Uh, John 11 will say, Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and believed in him. So this will ultimately work to strengthen the faith of some. Uh, verses, chapter 11, verse 7. Let's look at this last here, the alarm of the disciples. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Oh, really? <laughs> but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and you are going back? So, you know, Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan, and Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. Let's go back to Bethany. Let's go back to where Lazarus is sick, you know, uh, and dying. And they say, you know, really? Uh, so after the two-day delay, Jesus announced his plans to return to Judea and invites his disciples to go with him. But they're filled with fear for his safety. You know, he left Judea after he was almost stoned at the festival of dedication. We just read chapter 10, 31, 39. He was almost stoned there at the festival. And you're going to go back? It's dangerous. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble, for they will see this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. So take that literally at first. It just means that, you know, there's 12 hours of daylight, and if you walk in the day, you, don't, you probably won't stumble around. But when you walk at night, you can easily stumble. There's no light. Look at that literally. Now look at it symbolically or what it says spiritually. I say before the invention of accurate timepieces, both Jews and Romans, Romans and Jews, Reckon 12 hours of daylight, which therefore varied in length from season to season. Jesus is determined, so, that, so it's just common to speak this way no matter what season you're in, even though you're in December and you don't have 12 hours of daylight. This is just the way you speak, you know, about daylight is normally 12 hours. So Jesus is determined to go to Judea because he is still in the daylight period of his ministry. That's the point he's making here. This is still daylight. Darkness is coming. Night is coming. So even though he's coming to the end of this daylight time, it's still daylight. You know, as long as it's daylight, 
the point is he's safe in the Father's will. No one can take his life until it's the appointed time. Uh, and as long as it's still daylight, he's got to do the work that the Father has assigned him. So he's trying to tell him, don't be concerned about going about Judea. Yeah, I know they're trying to kill me, but uh, you know, as long as it's daylight, as long as it's the time for me, <laughs> you know, I'm safe and you're safe. Uh, as long as I'm doing the Father's work. And one of those works is going to be raising Lazarus. So that's one of the things God has for me to do is to raise Lazarus. So I'm going to go back. We're going to go back. And, uh, and we'll see the disciples are still alarmed. And Thomas will even have something to say about that. All right, let's uh, stop here. It's 8.15. And thank you so much. We will stop here for tonight, and Lord willing, we'll see you next week.